And one of the most spiritually rewarding disciplines that you can pursue is to simply meditate on the love of God. One of the most spiritually rewarding and fruitful disciplines that you can give your time to is to meditate upon the fact that your God is love. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part four of By Grace Through Faith, a seven-part series from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text today is the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter two, verses four through seven. Do you ever hear people say, what I hate about religion is that it always divides people. Do you ever feel that way? If it's true, why? And how should we respond to that? The funny thing about the Bible is that it teaches how united we really are. As Pastor Paul has demonstrated in By Grace Through Faith, we are united with each other in that we've all been rebels against God through our sin. As we continue to learn and change, we are united as believers by God's love. But sometimes we can divide what God unites. Here's part four of By Grace Through Faith. And as we read two times in John's first epistle, God is love. We are being led into the very being, the very heart of God, the creator. He is in his very essence, love. And one of the most spiritually rewarding disciplines that you can pursue is to simply meditate on the love of God. One of the most spiritually rewarding and fruitful disciplines that you can give your time to is to meditate upon the fact that your God is love. In accordance with the same logic by which Paul prays in Ephesians 1, you don't need to do anything, you simply need to know something. You have to know that your God is love. And theologians will often dissect that love and speak of the manifold love that we see being exercised by our God who is love. They begin with an inner Trinitarian love. God is love, which is to say he is love apart from you. God is love before you were created. God is love before you were in need of him. God is love before you acted in rebellion, which tells us that there is an inner Trinitarian love that is enjoyed and delighted in by God himself. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit eternally and perfectly loving one another. Then we could move out from there and say the next layer by which we see and experience God's love is a a general love exercised towards creation. Consider that God was not bound to create the universe. He was perfectly happy in and of himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly loving one another, and yet he acted so as to create. 
There is a love in his created work that we see shed abroad to all of the universe. The love experienced by creation. Beyond that, we could point to another layer of God's love, which is received in a special way by humanity. We begin with the Godhead and we then see love being exercised towards creation generally and now specifically towards humanity. Insomuch as he decreed that we would sit above the created order and we would receive the special privilege of being made in his image, we understand a unique kind of love that comes to mankind and mankind alone. Distinct and different from the love that is experienced by the rest of creation, this is another layer of love that comes from God. And then there is the ever so special love that is only experienced by the elect. Different and distinct from the love that is experienced by all of humanity is a love that comes through the gospel to those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world. It is not experienced by those whom he has not predestined for salvation. There is a special love for his children. And Paul explains the gospel in terms of that love. You were a wretched sinner and you had no hope. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. That was the impetus by which he acted. It is the reason that you are here this evening. And one reason that I say one of the most spiritually rewarding disciplines that you could ever give yourself to is to simply ponder and meditate upon the love of God is because, at least in part, there is in our sinful flesh built into us a readiness to distrust God. One of the reasons it is wise to set your mind so as to consider the manifold depths and riches of God's love is because intuitively in our sinful natures we tend to distrust God. We tend to doubt his love. It was introduced into our DNA around about Genesis chapter 3. When the serpent said to Eve, did God really say? The serpent there is assaulting the character of God, not merely causing Eve to doubt the command, but so also causing Eve to doubt the character of her creator. Is my God one who can be trusted? Is my God one who says one thing and means something altogether different? Am I certain of his love for me? And as she took of the fruit, and as Adam took of the fruit, and as sin came into the world, there is forever after, in every human being, a level of distrust towards God. We tend to doubt his love for us. And this is why Paul writes to the Romans, and he says, the evidence of God's love is found at the cross. You do not need to doubt him ever. Simply look to the cross and see that his love caused him to send his son so as to die for you. 
That is the most evident, most emphatic declaration of God's love for you as a Christian. Look to the death of Christ and see that God did not withhold his son, but willingly gave him for us. Will he not also with him freely give us all things? That is the argument. That's the logic that Paul employs there. And it should be the logic toward which we return every single day. Because in our flesh, we tend to doubt God. We either tend to doubt his love as it was manifested towards us in salvation, or more likely we doubt his ongoing abiding love towards us in so much as we press on in the race of sanctification. We rise up each and every day to live afresh to the glory of Christ at some level in our heart, doubting whether God is really for us today. And so the way that works itself out in practice ever so subtly as we begin to behave with a motive, a desire to impress God, to win his favor, to somehow get him on our side, forgetting the fact that he is already on our side. We already have his favor. We have his approval. We have his love in the gospel. I remember being told many years ago of a story that reminds me of this very truth. A family had adopted a young boy into their home. They had several kids already, and then they brought in this young boy who had had a terrible, terrible run for the few years that he had been alive. And so there were many, many problems with his behavior, his readiness to submit to authority, And he caused them great pain. And they knew that this would be what the first few years looked like. And it has always been their intention and their desire to adopt. And they trusted the Lord. They had prayed often. And they saw that this was an opportunity seemingly from him. And so they ran towards this opportunity knowing that it would be hard. And sure enough, for the first few years, it was terribly hard. And then things slowly began to improve, and in the Lord's kindness, he provided a means for the parents to plan a wonderful, what they hoped would be, memorable vacation. They announced to all of their children that they would be headed off to Disneyland. In just a few months, when the summer holidays came around, they would be flying as a family and spending a few days there, and everyone of course, was wonderfully excited. And then in the run-up, just a few weeks prior to, the young boy disobeyed in a way that was far greater than he ever had done before. He dishonored his parents greatly. He caused them more pain than he ever had done before, and he brought great shame on the family. And in the days that followed, understandably, communication within the home was very difficult. The parents were grieving. They had seen so much improvement, and they don't understand why there had been this lapse. And the boy felt terribly over his sin. And then it got to the day before the trip. And the father initiated. He went up to the boy's room, and he sat down with him on the bed and He said, son, you need to pack your suitcase because the trip is tomorrow. And he couldn't look at his dad. And so staring at the floor, he simply said, dad, 
I just assumed you'd be leaving me behind. And there was a long silence, and then the dad said to him, Son, are you part of this family? And with tears in his eyes, he said, I am. And the dad said, so you're coming on the trip. And in a much greater way, God's love towards us never fails us. It came towards us when we were rebels. He sent his son to die for us. And now his love abides with us. And though God may discipline us, If we pursue sin, his love never, ever leaves us. And as you think about the manifold riches of God's love expressed towards you in the gospel, one of the consequences, one of the outworkings, one of the implications should be a love toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. As you look around you this evening, everyone here who is a Christian has received exactly that same love. They haven't received a lesser expression of that love. They have not been saved by a different gospel. That same loving heavenly Father that expressed his great mercy towards you is the same loving Heavenly Father that saved your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul's argument here is headed towards an exhortation for unity. He wants Jew and Gentile to be reconciled, to link arms truly as brothers and sisters in Christ. And though perhaps it may be difficult for us to understand exactly the barriers in that first century church, Undoubtedly, in every local church this day, there are tendencies towards disunity. Tendencies towards disunity that come about in many, many different ways. We give voice to our pride and our sin in many, many different ways. And Paul would exhort us this evening towards unity. A unity that begins with a consideration of God's love towards us through the gospel. But he goes on, that is not the sum total of his argument. He then speaks about the fact that we have been made alive together with Christ. Verse 5, even when you were dead in your trespasses, this God who was rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul can't help himself. There is this parenthetical comment. This outburst, he's just reached the main verb in the sentence, and as soon as he gets there, he returns to the wonder of God's grace. By grace you have been saved. And then he picks up the thought and he says, and God raised us up with him, Christ, and seated us with him, Christ, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Paul is now explaining further the realities of the gospel for us. Notice that sharp contrast, we were dead in our trespasses. That was the domain in which we existed. We could not leave it. We couldn't get away from it. But now we've been made alive together with Christ. And those two words, with Christ, undoubtedly invoke the whole in Christ motif. It is in Christ and with Christ and through Christ that we are believers this day. 
through his life, death, and resurrection, by faith in him, we now enjoy newness of life with him. And what is particularly interesting is that that word, one word in the original, to be made alive together with, the Greek language is so wonderfully efficient, one word in the original, alive together with, It's a word, a verb that Paul has made up. It doesn't exist anywhere else. It is only found here in Ephesians and one other time in Colossians, also written by Paul. You cannot find it anywhere else in the Bible, far less anywhere else in all of the Greek literature that we have available. Paul finds cause to make a new word to speak about the wonders of the gospel. We have been made alive together with Christ. This is a unique privilege that cannot be claimed by anyone, no matter what their belief, in so much as they stand outside of the domain of the gospel. And notice it is not restricted to that one idea to be made alive together with but we were made alive with him. Verse 6, we were raised with him, and then again we were seated with him. Now here's what's even more interesting about Paul's thought as you survey the with verbs in his writings, and there are many of them, many of these with verbs, things happening with Christ, they are usually restricted to speak about end-time salvation. Paul is very fond of the with verbs, but he normally uses them to speak about our final glorification. So in Romans 8, just by way of example, he says we are co-heirs with Christ. That's just one example. Again, it's one verb, one word in the original, and it's speaking about an end time reality. But here, Paul says we are made alive with him, raised up with him, and seated with him, not speaking about final realities yet to be realized. These are present day realities for every Christian. This evening you are alive with Christ. This evening you have been raised up with him to newness of life. This very evening, in a way that perhaps we cannot fully comprehend, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Paul is probing here that wonderful doctrine of the Christian life where we understand the eschatological final blessings of salvation history to have come to us now. This would have been incomprehensible to the Old Testament Jews who kept reading their scriptures and they kept looking forward to the final day of salvation history when a a manifold treasury of blessings would be unleashed upon them and then you get to letters like Ephesians and Paul says you have them right now. The gospel has brought them near. You participate in these blessings right now. You've been made alive with Christ, raised up with him, and seated with him. 
And as you understand and ponder and consider this reality of the Christian life, that we are partakers now of final salvation day blessings, you understand that in a sense we could say there is a portion of us already residing in glory. As we work through the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Something that I said a few times is that it's as if we have a portion, a slice of heaven inside of us. God has deposited the Holy Spirit within us as a seal of our salvation and as a guarantee of our inheritance. That's what Paul says in chapter 1. And it's as if we have a portion of heaven residing in us now. Well, this evening... We could say in like manner, it is as if there is a portion of our spirits, our souls, found place in glory right now. This is why the Christian understands intuitively that this life is not his home. This world as it stands today is by no means our home. From the moment of your new birth in Christ, the moment of your salvation, you intuitively understand you are an alien and a stranger in this world. You don't belong here. And indeed, the Holy Spirit gives you deep and persistent longings for glory. The Christian who is walking in step with the Spirit, who is attuned to God's grace, has deep and persistent longings for heaven. Groanings that are too deep for words and so often overflow within us and give us such joy because we know this life is not the sum total of God's plan for us. We have wonderful longings inside us towards a better reality that are a very gift of the gospel. Now, if I said to you this evening, do you think you are the only Christian who has ever lived that has experienced those longings? I hope that you would laugh at me. Do you suppose you are the only Christian who has ever lived, who has ever felt anything akin to what you feel when you yearn for Christ's return and the inauguration of his kingdom and the ushering in of the new heavens of the new earth, are you the only Christian to feel those things? And you would laugh and say, I have no idea what would prompt you to ask that question. The reason is this. So often, as we allow expressions of disunity to creep in amongst us. We effectively behave as if we are on a tier above those against whom we hold a grudge. You are listening to Timeless Truth Today. What is the reason we see so much discord in our world? Isn't it the same reason we have discord with our friends, our family, our co-workers, within ourselves and with God himself? We forget who God is, and we forget who we are as his creation. We then forget our rebellion against him, and we forget that we can be reconciled to him and have unity with him and with one another. We are all prone to forget these truths. 
If you'd like to learn more about being in unity with God and your fellow man, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. Press broadcasts on the homepage. There you'll find an audio archive, an abundance of teaching to help you, all free for the listening. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist and a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. While you're on our website, would you consider becoming part of our listener support team? Your financial gift keeps this ministry outreach going forward to many, many hungry souls with the good news of Jesus Christ. To make your gift of any amount, simply hit the donate button on the homepage of TimelessTruthToday.org. Thank you for considering a gift to this ministry. Join us tomorrow for part five of By Grace Through Faith to hear Pastor Paul hone in on the grace that saves and keeps us. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening.